Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast Series, held on September 18, 2019, Lifting the Cloud, What Companies Ought to Know About the New Cloud Computing and Digital Content Regulations. The panelists for the webcast were Rebecca Lee, a principal in PwC's International Tax Services Practice, Matthew Chen, a partner in PwC's International Tax Services Practice, Marco Fiacadori, a principal in PwC's Transfer Pricing Practice, Sarah Logan, a director in PwC's Federal Tax Services Practice, and Christine Floor, a director in PwC's Tax Controversy and Regulatory Services Practice. This second excerpt consists of case studies, other considerations such as change in method of accounting and information reporting and withholding, and concludes with key takeaways. Take a listen. So let's move on to some case studies, because I think this is all, like the concepts are great. There seems to involve a lot of judgment on behalf of tax personnel to actually go and apply them. So maybe we can walk through some examples collectively. Yes, you know, I'll, I'll try to set up the examples and, and we'll all make comments as necessary. The, and we have three examples here and they sort of go from the easy, easier case, if there's anything easy, considered easy in this area, we go from the easier case to the harder case, um, one that at the end isn't necessarily covered by the regulations. So the first example here is a uh, downloaded digital content transaction. And you have a company that is transferring digital content via download to related parties and third parties, and customers access this digital content. I mean, it could be, the digital content could be software or um, uh, music or videos, as long as it's uh, downloaded and transferred, and the customers do not acquire any copyright right, copyright right, meaning the right to the, the right to distribute the product for resale, the right to cre create, um, reproduce the software for distribution, the right to create derivative work, the right to make a public, um, public performance or public display of the copyrighted article. The customer just gets the right to use the digital content, but it's a perpetual right. So under the existing Dash 18 framework now, this isn't covered by the cloud computing um, regs because there there is a transfer of digital content. Um, when we apply the Dash 18 regs, the output is that this is a sale of copyrighted articles. And because of that, first from a source standpoint, the place of sale is the, the location of download or installation onto the end user's device. And so if you look at this fact pattern, the, the CFC here could be selling to unrelated customers that may be in the US or in other countries, could be anywhere. And so the source of that income, the place of their download would, their, the place of their download would inform, at least in part, on the source of that income. And why is that source important? Because, could, could, be, could be because if the, um, if the CFC here has a US trader business, for instance, then it needs to determine its um, source of income, which could have ECI implications. And if it's sell, from a subpar F standpoint, if the CFC is selling to related parties, then is that 
products sold for use in the CFC's country of incorporation. Mm -hmm. And if the, on the other side, for the entities that are paying for this, um, let's say that related distributor is actually a U.S. entity, mm -hmm. then what are the, I mean, there could be potential fee considerations. Correct. Yeah, again, we go back to the theme of, you know, properly characterizing, and again, to the extent it's an internal, considering alternative ways of uh, structuring the transaction in a way that perhaps is more favorable or at least advantageous for tax purposes. So. And if I change the facts here to say instead of a CFC, if it's a U.S. corporation selling to unrelated customers that are actually downloading and installing outside of the United States, then at first you say, well, seems like the reg change is helpful because now the place of download is the first thing I look at, which if I have foreign users, that are, or not foreign users, but users that are downloading and installing outside of the United States, then on the surface, well, that looks like foreign source income to me, and maybe it helps with my foreign tax credit usage. But then you also have to think about, well, is that software considered to be produced, produced by the U.S. seller? And if it's produced, what are the activities that could give rise to a production, and where do those activities occur? So this, this sourcing rule could affect both U.S. companies and also foreign companies. Yeah, another consideration is a practical one, um, you know, how you track the place of download. And to the extent there are, you know, virtual private networks, VPNs, mm -hmm. where those VPNs are located. So again, we go back to some of the complexities around not only the facts, but also the ability of the tax department to keep track of those facts as they develop and continue to evolve. And we go to the next example, um, and my, my public service announcement for the balance of the examples in the last one as well is we're talking federal tax and everything we just talked about, about location of the transaction, location of the consumer, everything we've talked about foreign versus U.S., you can take that same template and kind of relay it on a state-by-state -state basis mm -hmm. um, and look at the states that conform, don't conform, when they conform, all the other good stuff. So picture this exercise that we did for one jurisdiction plus a bunch of non-U.S. jurisdictions and just do it in every state that you operate in, so another 50 uh, versions of this exercise. Boy, tax reform is fun. Matt, you want to do this next example? Okay, sure. So, so the next example, you could think of similar digital content being provided, except now instead of downloading it to the user's device, it's used solely through remote access. So it's hosted on a server that, in this, in this example, we said the server's owned and operated, maintained by a third party, a third party that is providing the same service to thousands of other businesses. So we're providing a similar type of digital content and providing it to users on a, you know, for their use on a limited, time-limited basis, but the manner of providing the digital content is through server hosting. And because there's no transfer of copyrighted article here, articles here, we are now um, in the Dash 19 rules, which um, apply the all relevant factors tests that you mentioned earlier. That's right. And what's really nice about this is it illustrates um, that, that you can have multiple transactions in one arrangement because we've got two transactions here for the CFC. We've got one for the use of the third party servers 
and then they've where they're making a payment, and then they've got one uh, with respect to the unrelated customers where the customers are paying the CFC. And so both of those would have to be analyzed using that multi-factor test with all of the relevant factors. And I think that when we looked at this, you know, saying, hey, the server is located remotely, it's it's being used by the third party. Um, they're providing similar services to many other customers. You know, the, the outcome that you get is that you're getting services from that vendor. You're you're not you're not renting anything from that vendor. You're getting services. And then similarly, when you look at what you're providing to the end users, where where you're streaming the content, um, I think that the outcome that we have is that we're providing that digital service to the customers instead of you know having a, a rental payment from them for the the digital content. And I'll say um, one. We, we talked earlier about what commons taxpayer, taxpayers may be providing. And what, what I mentioned was taxpayers were probably going to comment on the place of sale issue in Dash 18. What I should have mentioned at that time was, well, the Dash 19 rules only give us rules to characterize a transaction as a sale or as a lease. They don't tell us once you're in the, sorry, as a service or a lease. Mm -hmm. They don't tell us what, how do you source the income once you have service income? All we have right now is a very basic rule in the sourcing area that says if you, if a taxpayer generates service income, the source of that income is the place of performance of services. There's not a lot of detail behind that. And the IRS and Treasury are trying to formulate some workable rules that could apply in this context. And some of the relevant issues that come up are, one, well, the service being performed here, what are the relevant assets and activities that are generating that service income? And two, if some of those assets and activities are owned by different entities, or even in this case, you could see the servers owned by the third party, okay. whose assets and activities are relevant in this determination? Until until further guidance is provided, I think taxpayers have to do their best based on the existing laws and principles that are obviously pre-cloud, right. you know, that came up in the pre-cloud um, generation. And this is one of those things that kind of keeps me up at night a little bit, yes. uh, because I think technology moves fast. Uh, and your ability as a tax professional to be able to exercise judgment and apply these factors, um, both from a making sure that I get the characterization right under the proposed regs and under the case law, um, but also then to, to reach a reasonable conclusion as to source once I'm informed mm -hmm. by the things we do have guidance on. Um, that all assumes that I have a deep knowledge of the technology that I'm applying these rules to. Um, and a lot of us got into tax not uh, engineering or other fields um, because we liked, let's say, reading tax code and not coding. Although, it's a pun there. Um, the big thing that I sort of make sure that I stress to folks is you can't apply any of these rules unless you have a really good working knowledge, uh, the technology itself. And you mentioned it early on, like this is an opportunity to like really get to know the folks on your business teams, not just what they're selling, which a lot of our folks have spent time on, but like really the nuts and bolts of how the underlying platforms work and how the 
services are provided. Um, and it's kind of funny because I always think my, my uh, transfer pricing colleagues do a lot of that um, for the work that they do, just core making sure everyone's properly compensated. Um, I think it's incumbent on the rest of us who don't do transfer pricing on a day-to-day -day basis to become much more up to speed on the underlying technology architecture. Yeah, another comment is about you know the trend that it's just a growing amount of investments and you can just see that cloud computing is just taking over some mm -hmm. of the typical infrastructure that would have been otherwise delivered differently. So this is going to be very important. In fact, you probably have already in the pipeline significant amount of investments that relate to this type of, of issues. And that's not going to disappear. In fact, probably growing. And, and especially in non-core uh, technology industries where cloud wasn't something you were necessarily uh, looking at first in your day. So the, the last example is a little bit of um, some fact pattern that may not be covered in the regulations. The, these regulations, whether you're in Dash 18 or Dash 19, they operate on a general presumption that we're going to characterize a single transaction in one way. Mm -hmm. But in the real world, of course, a single transaction may contain characteristics of Let's say, for example, a single transaction could have characteristics of a software transfer, but also hosted software. And so in one part of the transaction suggests it's a um, property transaction, and the rest is a service transaction. And th what the regs tell you is, well, if you have a transaction that has mixed characteristics, you would ignore the de minimis portion of, of the transaction. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, we, we could be... Um, purchasing downloaded software that are installed onto our computers that we can use offline most of the times. But if there's something, if we need help, then we can click on a button that takes us to an online help desk. So in that case, perhaps 99% of the times we're using it offline and there's a um, minor component that is actually remote access. And in that case, it's the facts are clear we ignore the 1% and say this entire transaction is characterized as a property transaction. So that, that's, that's easy in some cases. But what if you have a transaction where it's unclear if, if any part of it is de, de minimis? What, what if it's instead of 5% versus 95 or 1% versus 99? What if it's 30, 70? And this example tries to illustrate that. And it's not something really discussed or address right now in, in the examples where you have, let's say, software with mixed network access and downloaded components, and neither part is de minimis. And I think in, in, in this case, companies have to think about, well, is there really a single transaction, in which case I can't bifurcate, or do I have a, a, an arrangement with two different transactions and so that I can characterize them separately? or what, but, that approach might be too complex and not administrable. So what about applying a predominant character type of analysis, which is a little different than saying I ignore a de minimis part of the transaction, is just to say I look at the overall arrangement and what is the, the predominant part of that. And there's some case law that provides basis for sourcing or characterizing a transaction that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and listening to the dialogue around sort of you have uh, transactions are characterized, we don't bifurcate transactions. I mean, to me, that's something that in the real world, your 70-30 example is tough. 
and using a predominant uh, characterization approach, which makes a lot of sense from a case law perspective, um, can sometimes just feel like you're, you're running into a situation where you're exercising judgment, which we do every day, but also um, if the goal of this guidance is to provide some level of certainty, you know, does it get you all the way down the field? Um, you know, Mark, one of the things that uh, when I think about certainty, <laughs> I think about BEPS 2.0. Yeah. Is there anything that's informative about this reg package or the discussions around the reg package um, that are informative of where we think we're going to go with BEPS 2.0? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. So I'll give you, um, I'll punt a little bit, but I'll give you yeah. three elements for thoughts. One is <clears throat> the law of unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. um, as everyone really clearly see the origin of these proposed regs as perhaps 2.0 is digital. But ultimately, not just the tech companies or digital mm -hmm. are impacted. Everyone is impacted. In fact, primarily, in many cases, the ones that are not expected to be impacted are the ones that significantly are going to suffer or at least going through some of the burdens here. Um, the other sort of point of view is with respect to Pillar 1, mm -hmm. one of the, you know, big issues is nexus and in particular the movement towards a destination-based um, you know framework so BEPS 2.0 um, clearly is trying to address that issue and these regs for example with respect to you know the download the, the definition of the location of the download as the truly um, relevant uh, element in sourcing could in fact provide some inspiration, let's say, mm -hmm. or at least some um, food for thought with respect to the overall discussion that is happening at, within, within the OECD. So, you know, it's moving and I think it's somewhat interesting to see how the U.S. is, um, you know, advancing some, some ideas on, in proposed regs um, that perhaps may influence the discussion in, in Paris. Great point. So as we move into sort of the other considerations, the knock-on consequences of applying these regs. Uh, Sarah, can you briefly tell us about changes in accounting methods? So these regs come out, now what? <laughs> sure. Um, so both sections dash 18 and dash 19 of the proposed regs indicated that when the regulations go final, taxpayers may have to change their method of accounting with respect to these items um, in order to properly implement the regulations. So what does that mean to change the method of accounting? Well, typically you don't just go changing that by yourself. You're not going to say, oh, the final regs came out, let me comply, I'll change the number on this year's return to reflect the proper characterization. Instead, what you do is you've got to secure the consent of the commissioner, mm -hmm. you follow the rules that are under section 446, and that typically means you're going to file a form 3115 mm -hmm. to properly request your change in method of accounting. Now, there's two ways you can do that. It can be non-automatic, where you pay a user fee, and you've got to get it in by the end of the year, and you wait for your consent agreement. Mm -hmm. Or it can be automatic, meaning it goes along with your return with a second copy shared with the IRS at one of the service centers, and you, you're deemed to have consent as long as you comply with all the terms and conditions in the automatic method change procedure. Um, a lot of the rules related to this are in RevPROC 2015-13 and currently 2018-31, the automatic method change procedure. Right now, there's not an automatic method change for the entirety of this. So there is an automatic change for if you're changing characterization, say, from sale to lease. And that's done on a cutoff, meaning you leave your old 
agreements the way they were and new agreements going forward you implement using your new method of accounting. But for example, a change from lease to services, there's not an automatic change in method of accounting right now. Do we anticipate that there might be? Well, I will tell you, the IRS National Office doesn't like having to manually process mm -hmm. a ton of advanced consent forms 3115 that many, many people have to file in order to comply with a broad regulatory package. So I would predict that we would see a new automatic method change come out very close to when we receive these final regulations in order for taxpayers to comply with these regulations. Great points. And if this weren't hard enough, uh, Christine, yes. you sure. have to make all these determinations and then... Right. Um, so if you're making payment, if your company is paying for these types of services, you know, the first question to consider is who are you paying? Um, is it a U.S. service provider, a U.S. company, or non-U.S.? Um, and then what is the character of the income? Um, so if we're looking at a sale, uh, sale of property, luckily we're out of information reporting and withholding. But if it's a royalty or services and you're making payment to a non-U.S. person, then we have to look at source. Um, hopefully, you know, if, if these are services and it's a foreign company, you know, Matt spoke earlier about um, how to properly characterize that. Um, there's some question about how, okay, so... If they're located in a foreign country, can we assume that all of the services are therefore, therefore foreign mm -hmm. and therefore we don't care about, uh, we don't have any U.S. information reporting and withholding? Um, so that's something to consider, but I don't think it's something we can automatically assume. Uh, I think there's some factors that are going to go into that, um, as well as if it's rental income, you know, then we have to determine, okay, so where is that property being used? Mm -hmm. And you know where this really, I think, companies have to focus on is if making U.S. source payments to non-U.S. people, we have some withholding obligations. Um, we have to collect tax documentation. If there's no treaty claims, then that's 30% withholding. And if that withholding doesn't take place, then the company's liable for that amount. So that's where we spend a lot of time with clients um, on remedying, like uh, this type of exposure um, is something that they missed, and kind of helping them work through it, um, but hopefully we can kind of catch it um, in advance and help set up those policies and procedures. So, And, and those are great points. Um, and I want to come down the line because there's so many good takeaways from today's discussion, both technical and practical. Sarah, I'll start with you and go this way. Um, what should a viewer of this webcast walk away with? I would say when you're looking at your cloud transactions, it's not too soon to start looking at, you know, the all relevant factors tests, even though these aren't regulations that you need to comply with now. We've pointed uh, out that, you know, you can get some initial uh, ideas on how to characterize things. There could possibly be some changes to your agreements that you could do if you don't like the particular outcome that you've got, you know, and, and then it will have you well informed as these regulations near finalization as to whether or not you're going to need to make any changes and how you're currently accounting for these transactions. I think two things. One, companies that are dealing, transacting and copyrighted article transfers, digital content transfers, they should start thinking about the potential impact of the modified source rule mm -hmm. um, on their source of income, both from an inbound and outbound standpoint, and potentially develop ways to address if there's any adverse implications. And also for taxpayers to think about making comments to the IRS and Treasury about how to develop a set of rational and workable rules around the source, sourcing cloud transaction income because of how complicated business um, operations and transactions are, unless we make the rules rational and sensible, 
it, it could be very difficult for taxpayers to figure out what is the source of their service income and what is the source of their service payment. And I, I would say one, one important comment to make might be that in, in case you are sourcing your service income and their service providers helping you, then in general, their activities really shouldn't affect how you source your service income because their activities generate their own service income, your activities generate your own, and there really needs to be limit as to whose activities that we should be looking to. And that's based on existing principles. Including agency principles. Yes. Yes. Um, and I'd say, you know, if you're making these types of payments, then you need to consider whether or not you need to collect um, documentation from your vendors, um, W-8s, W-9s. Um, consider whether or not you may have withholding obligations and depositing obligations and then reporting obligations at the end of the year, 1099s, 1042s, 1042s's. Yeah, I would say the first place is probably not to boil the ocean and identify the big transactions, the big payments. Externally, either to vendors or to customers, or customers received from customers, and internally. And this is a place where I think um, a number of companies that are not in the tech space are going to have to look hard and uh, you know, consider really what is the impact with respect to the ongoing digital developments in their own ecosystem. And I'll close us out with the theme that the world is digital. So both from a recipient payment standpoint as well as a payor of payments, um, take the time to really understand all the pieces of your business and get a sense for where the digital elements are. You're not going to boil the ocean today, but becoming as literate as you can be on the way the underlying business process works is going to arm you to be nimble, not just with respect to applying these regs, but all the other knock-on consequences. So with that, they're great takeaways. I thank all my uh, panelists here and want to thank you for joining. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to this Tax Readiness Podcast. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the speakers. You can find their contact information in the description of this episode. Thank you.